The Rufus Project would like to advise the following podcast contains spoilers for the 1980 camp catastrophe, The Apple. If you do not wish to have this movie spoiled, please watch the movie before listening to the podcast. Christian and I watched The Apple from 1980. Was it a crunchy, juicy, tasty treat? Or should it be banished from good movie paradise forever? I guess you'll just have to find out after the theme. So bad it's good, what's this movie do you think we should? Got bad guy love, dodgy creatures, but we want to know what the redeeming features. Hello and welcome to the Rufus Project Redeeming Features cast. This time around, at Christian's suggestion, we checked out The Apple from 1980. I am your host Trevor Holland and I of course am joined by my good friend and co-host... The Apple Suggester... Christian Fletcher, thanks, <laughs> thanks for having me back, Trevor, after making you watch such an interesting film. So it's, it's always good to be able to see what we can come up with each each um, podcast. So thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, The Apple, um, I think right from the outset, it's, it's, not, it's going to be an interesting one to talk about, because as I'm sure our listeners now know, we do like to start with turkey trivia, but we're a bit light on the turkey. I mean, I can tell everyone out there that it's rated 4.3 out of 10, on IMDb, but uh, when it comes to actually finding out the actual budget and how much it earned, uh, pretty much all my research has come up with a low-budget movie, and that's it. Yeah, I was I was much the same, Trevor. I couldn't find anything anywhere, and I don't know whether that's MGM or, or possibly the, the company, Ken and Group, trying to, trying to suppress that information as much as possible because it's so bad. I don't know. But, um, yeah, it is quite odd. So maybe it was um, just one that slipped through the cracks. It was actually a film that was released in West Germany in 1979 and then you know, released, you know, into America the following year. So I don't know if something happened in the translation, you know, and these figures just sort of became, you know, quite obsolete. And the fact, too, that the film didn't go very well, I suppose it, um, yeah, didn't really seem relevant. We're probably the only people to be talking about it all these years later. (laughs) Well, I mean, I I guess if we move into the trivia, I mean, there are people talking about this because I think, as you mentioned last time, Christian, this movie actually has... Uh, almost like the, the midnight screening circuit in the US. It, it's still up there in amongst, you know, Rocky Horror and the like in, in getting that regular screening with an audience coming in and getting involved. And, and that is, it's only sort of been in the last sort of maybe five years or so. I remember even reading up on the internet, you know, about that sort of time that, you know, people were saying, oh, you know, they found this print in someone's basement of this film, you know, that we'd only ever sort of heard about or everyone had forgotten. And they gave it a few midnight runs and, and they realised that, oh, my God, this is so bad, but good, you know, it's perfect for midnight. So, yeah, it can't... It definitely captured that kind of crowd, and I think too. Like I'd always known of the film. I think it's it's always been kind of out here, you know, in Australia. We've got you know Xanadu and Can't Stop the Music, which we have, of course, spoken about on the Redeeming Features before. But so I think this is many ways the Apple is the American Xanadu and Can't Stop the Music. It's it's probably you know that's it's in that kind of league or it's become that kind of of, of film. So yeah, it is interesting that people are talking about it. So yeah, to to, to go back on what I said earlier about. We're the first people to be talking about it. Well, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's it's incorrect. There have been many people talking about it recently, and I suppose that's what gives these films this sort of this cult background. So 
I know I rushed out and bought the DVD, you know, about this sort of time when, when I had heard people um, heard um, people talking about it. I got it imported, actually. And, um, yeah, my jaw dropped. And, and, you know, I think I even screened it a couple of years ago at, at one of my bar screenings and people's jaws dropped. So it was good to be able to go back and sort of look at it in a more sort of, I don't know, serious or fun way. I don't know how you want to look at it for the redeeming features. So that's where I fit in with the apples. So. <laughs> Fair enough. You look at it in the redeeming features way, I guess. Yeah, which is always, you know, it's always a different, it's like putting rose tinted glasses up with a lot of things, but, you know, sometimes it's so you don't have to see the badness so much. But I will be honest, Trevor, you know, usually it's hard for me to get through these movies, but I have... You know, I, I I have maybe watched it more than once in the lead up to the recording of tonight, so that might show a bit of the interest in the film. So, there but I don't want to spoil too much just yet. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, probably just going back to uh, a bit more of the trivia. I found a couple of, um, I suppose they're, they're not the nicest bits of trivia, but I certainly found them quite interesting. Uh, apparently, the the director Menahem Golden. Uh, said that when the picture was booed midway through at the 1980 Montreal Film Festival, he left the theatre, went to his hotel, and was preparing to commit suicide by jumping off the balcony when his business partner barged in and stopped him. <laughs> and he wouldn't be barging in to say, hey, actually, the movie is a smash. So, yeah, that is quite intense, you know. Mm -hmm. And and I don't know if they've also mentioned in that, Trevor, the, the fact that I, I don't know if this was the promotional gimmick that was done the whole way through, but... When people used to attend screenings of the Apple in 1980, they'd give out copies of the soundtrack LP. And I think by the end, well, you know, it didn't run for very long, but they ended up having to stop doing that because so many people would end up just throwing these records at the screen in disgust that they had to get they had all these dents in these screens around America. So, you know, and that, it's funny, we now go on eBay and the, the LP is like 100 plus because it's so rare. But, you know, back then, you know, people didn't want a bar of it. That was actually my other bit of trivia, was the fact that, uh, yeah, the people throwing the soundtrack at the screen caused uh, extensive damage in a number of, a number of cinemas. Yeah, oh. so that wouldn't have been, uh, you know, wouldn't have been a good start for Canon, because, you know, Canon Group um, being, so I suppose, I can't really think of any other big titles, like, I think it was, like, Over the Top with Sylvester Stallone, but they were, you know, famous for doing a lot of these trashy 80s, you know, VH, what we're used to seeing on VHS, those kind of films, and The Apple was kind of the first film for the 80s for them, so this was a really interesting effort to come out from them. They never touched musicals again, and I'm, <laughs> I can, you know, I can sort of, sort of see why, but it definitely fitted in with their typical low budget um, sort of, um, you know, let, let's put on a show and just hope for the best because that's the whole thing that seems to come through the Apple. So I guess to, to get the ball rolling, Christian, since you, you did suggest this, perhaps, um, perhaps a, a little synopsis of, of what the Apple is about and then we can move on to uh, maybe uh, talking about a review or two. Okay, well, quite briefly, I suppose, if there's so much going on in the Apple, but if you want to look, break it down, you've got a young duo from Canada who enter the seedy world of the music industry in futuristic 1994. Now, uh, it, you know, of course, thinking this is filmed in 1979 and their version of 1994, which, of course, it, it allows for a lot of the, the visual sights that we see, but, um, but the whole world is controlled by the BIM, which is, you know, um, Boogaloo International Music, which I think it's Boogaloo International Music, yeah. And um, and he, you know, and these people essentially enter what I see as a futuristic version of the Eurovision Song 
contest. And hey, a lot of the costumes are very similar. And um, so this young this young couple from Moose Jaw, Canada, enter this seedy world of music industry and essentially get sucked in. And the film sort of takes on it sort of takes on the shape of the Adam and Eve story, but doesn't quite know if it wants to be that or whether it wants to only be that plot halfway through. Essentially, I look at it as showing the seedy world of show business, and in some respects, it's quite clever. And I know that it's being so light with it, Trevor, but that's probably the best way I can think of plot summary-wise. As uh, actually, I've got to admit, I did ask Rand again about this one, and and uh, yeah, not many people, well, pretty much no one I spoke to uh, knew of the Apple. A couple of people had heard of it by reputation, but yeah, I, I couldn't actually find anyone to give me any input uh, with regards to actually having seen it and experienced firsthand. So I'm guessing uh, it still has a while to a while to go before it takes off in Australia, if we consider that a thing that we want to happen or not that i guess we'll find out uh but i have found a uh of course amazon does not fail me and i have found a one-star review of course <laughs> it had to be one out there mm-hmm. oh, there's quite a few but uh just <laughs> give me this one simply titled bad but not fun this movie fails in every department. A musical with bad songs. It was the first effort from the composer, who let, later went on to score Mortal Kombat 2 and American Ninja 3. Frequent dance scenes with dull choreography, a message movie with the nothing to say, an earnest movie warning the audience about evil record producers, created by Golden Globus, men who made a career of producing movies that cheated audiences. It was it was fun to see such a flagrant gay sensibility in a 1980 movie. One dance number cut between firemen, construction workers, policemen and tights, and a biker gang in back leather. But the flip side is that none of the women's costumes were sexy. They were just weird. The comparison between the Apple and Rocky Horror Picture Show is unfair. Rocky Horror had great songs, fine singers, a sense of humour, and a clever visual style. The Apple has none of that. One star. Do you think they're being a bit harsh, or uh, is that pretty accurate? A little harsh, but I can see so many. I, look, I can see both sides of the coin with this movie, and yeah, I definitely can see what they're saying. But yeah, I, I think that's in many ways not to spoil too much. But that I think is essentially, as I've now sort of worked out, is is the fun of it, you know. And and you know, Trevor, from some of the other things that I've spoken about, you know, like I, I'm into those sort of campy, <laughs> you know, seventies, eighties sort of you know nostalgia trip musicals. And this pretty much fits right in that period, and it manages to work. You're quite lost the first time you see it. But, um, you know, a few more viewings, you manage to take a bit more on board. But, yeah, there is a lot of stuff that I can understand the casual viewer would um, would think, of course, about the Apple. Well, I guess that's what we probably should move on to. So uh, the Apple, I've got to say that um, I'm, I'm doing this more and more with a lot of the redeeming features moving. Just having a, a quick look at the runtime before I start watching it. And uh, seeing that this was less than 90 minutes, I, I actually felt a slight sense of relief. <laughs> and, okay, it's, oh, yeah. not, it's not over long. That's almost reassuring. Oh, definitely. And I think that's always... And I think any movie, John Waters, the director, always says, you know, no movie should be over an hour and a half. And I believe it, you know, it gives you more... It gives you less time to sort of um, get distracted with sort of padding out of stuff. So I think, yeah, no, it definitely made this a much more enticing experience this time around. Yeah, and, and saying that, it certainly doesn't waste any time getting cheesy. Their vision of 1994, I kept thinking, wow, if only they knew what 1994 was really going to be like, because, put it this way, when you think of the 90s, you think of grunge, you think of the Seattle scene, 
forget that entirely. This is 1994, extrapolated from Casey and the Sunshine Band. Yeah, <laughs> with a little bit of every rocker Stedford you've ever been to. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, oh, but it's always that's what I love about films of this period. There's always uh, or movies that are made sort of in the late seventies. There's always that feel that, of course, in the nineties we'll all still be wearing flares, except they'll have bits of alfoil stuck all over them, or or be the most elaborate costumes. Because you know, my knowledge of the late seventies in disco, a lot of those costumes that they were wearing were pretty much exactly the same as a lot of those disco acts were wearing during you know on top of the pops and things like that so you know it was straight out of that period but yeah so over the top and yeah they didn't hold back they thought they may as well get to it there's not even sort of a build-up at the start it's pretty much just the line roar from mgm and straight into that opening song where the campness just you know doesn't hold back mm-hmm. yep and they're all doing the bim <laughs> yeah which takes a while to kind of understand what he's actually saying and and i was trying to work it as he's saying Bim's on his way. I, that got me so baffled, but I'm like, oh, I think there'll be a lot of other things that's going to baffle me yep. about this movie. I, I kind of shut down a bit during the song, and, and then they cut to the um, to the booth where they're monitoring everything, and they're monitoring heartbeats with so oh, such futuristic computer equipment <laughs> they had there, and <laughs> just keeping a track of uh, of how the audience was reacting to this music. And you already got the feeling that they were, you know, everything had gone to rack and ruin. Like, without them sort of spelling out the whole thing, the whole world that had become kind of obsessed with music, you kind of got that feeling that, it had, that sort of the, everyone had kind of turned into degenerates and were just kind of absorbed in this weird chanting. Yeah, and that opening song did just keep to repeat, you know, Bim's on his way, like, oh, over and over again. But that heartbeat concept was quite interesting, and I was sort of, there were so many, like, like many things in the movie, I just thought that they'd develop it a little bit further, but it never kind of, it was just a, a throwaway thought or a really interesting style for one scene, and you never kind of saw that thing again. So it was interesting that they kind of were judging people based on their heartbeats, and they kind of influenced people's decision. You know, as soon as, you know, this, this young couple from Moose Jaw come in and kind of threaten taking... <clears throat> excuse me, taking over, you know, their, their their lead singers, I suppose, you know, they'll, they'll do whatever they can to sabotage the act. So it's, you know, supposed to be representative of the music industry, I suppose. Mm-hmm. They'll get out the red tape. Oh, gosh. And, and then there's a big <laughs> scene about it, it's like, you know, oh, what happens if someone sees me? Well, you're dead, very dead. And then you're like, well, no one's around anyway. You didn't even need to say any. Oh, there's just, there's so much. And I think it's a lot to do with the fact that, it was written probably in another language and translated really badly. It's just mm-hmm. there's so much that just doesn't quite work yeah. dialogue-wise. <laughs> yeah. What happens if everyone sees me? You're dead. You're dead. Turns to the guy behind the recording equipment and says, here, put this on. Yeah. Oh, and it's just like, yeah, ridiculous. So. <laughs> and then um, I think yeah, between, yeah. between the two musical acts where they have the, the hostess come out, and she says 1994, like about three or four times, just to really stress that this movie is in the future. <laughs> oh, but even better, above her, above the top of the stage, there's an alfoil 1994, <laughs> just in case you forgot. But then the part that kind of is a real kick in the face to it is right above the audience is what looks like a mirror ball just sitting right in the middle. And it's just kind of like, okay, you were filmed in the 70s. <laughs> and it just sort of, yeah, and it just sort of lost it. And, and But then you've got the um, the Mooshaw couple, um, Alfie and Bibi, who kind of, I suppose, a lot of people have said they're the Brad and Janet of the movie, which I suppose that makes sense. And, you know, but that's probably one of the only kind of comparisons for from Rocky Horror, you could, you could probably end from there. But, um, but you know, you've got them coming in and singing, I suppose, that really plain, you know, typical love song that just does not fit in with 
the rest of the sound of the place. So I think they've done something that's on purpose to be so jarring against this other kind of, I wouldn't even call it a disco. I'm tempted to call it a disco musical, but I wouldn't even say it's disco. It's just that real kind of real early 80s synthesised music. <laughs> but it was futuristic, Christian. Futuristic. I know. But then I love the, when he, there's even one shot in the opening credits where they're all running through, to, I think, towards the, um, towards the um, festival. And there's a shot, there's a big billboard in the background with Jimi Hendrix and Blondie on it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that would have been around right in the late 70s. <laughs> I don't mm. know if they, um, in their version of 1994, if Blondie still would have been a thing. <laughs> oh, she was probably, uh, they were probably like saints <laughs> or something. Yeah, exactly. they probably anointed this, this Mr. Boogaloo, who's such an, such an interesting character. He's kind of, so he's like the... Um, I suppose you kind of look, if you want to look at the Adam and Eve thing, he was very much the devil, or you know, the he's the the devil of the whole sort of the whole piece. But he kind of is an interesting enough sort of character to keep you interested. But you just sort of are wondering the whole time where you know where his character's kind of going. It just sort of floats in and out of the scenes. You just sort of get the impression, oh, okay, cool. Well, he's the guy in charge. Yeah, I mean, but it's so subtle. I mean, how how could you think of him as the devil with the actual subtlety at which they portray him where suddenly his office turns into a, a flaming cavern and he's got a horn sticking out of his head and he's wearing a giant cape. How could you possibly think that he was the devil? Oh, oh. But that's actually sort of, there was sort of up to that point, you've sort of touched on a really interesting part, it was right up until that point, like, you know, I'm usually struggling with a lot of these movies because I, I need sort of films that have got fast editing and kind of keep my interest because I, I lose interest quite quickly. And I did take note that I was about 25 minutes, half an hour in, and I still wasn't sort of losing interest until the area arrives where we sort of are transformed into this sort of... Well, well, I'm getting the impression that Alfie is seeing, yeah, this this flat, you know, flash forward or whatever of what he thinks is going to happen to them signing the contract. So as a result, he decides not to. So And then hence it going into this sort of Adam and Eve story. But that was sort of the first time they sort of touched on that whole Adam and Eve thing. And then you're going, this movie's called The Apple. You're touching on the apple now, but then you don't bring it back into the story again. It's just so confusing, and it just seemed like it was just shoved in there. <laughs> yeah, shoved in there with uh, yet yeah, another song and dance number. And they they cram those song and dance numbers in. I, I think of like the slightest justification they have, just at the drop of the hat, they're just going to launch into another song number. And that was something which I, I found pretty much continued through most of this movie. Somebody just needs to needed to say something that didn't even really really see, seem all that important, and then suddenly there's a new song and dance number. <laughs> and it kind of like you know, as I said, it kind of kept my interest in that respect because the first half, pretty much right up until the first half, because I felt the film was very much in two in you know in um, yeah two halves. But about halfway, I was noticing yeah there was pretty much a song every five minutes, and you know they go oh you have to be a master oh of course there's a song now about having him trying to be a master, and then. Oh, he he has to inquire about who the who the ballet two thousand are. Oh, of course, ballet two thousand start doing their show business routine, and that's actually a really interesting, a funny um, routine because it really shows off the fact that this was filmed in. I don't know if it was abandoned or hadn't been 
used yet, but it was, I might have been in an abandoned shopping mall, and that's one scene where it just screams out, oh my god, you know, and there's, there's even obvious notes that they've obviously shot this scene so many times that there's just so much glitter that's fallen off the costumes on the ground, and no one's bothered to try and pick it up for continuity's sake. <laughs> I just felt that it was just, that was just one of those, it actually looks more like an airport, not a shopping centre, but, but yeah, so you've, it was clever, clever use of what they had, you know, turning Mr. Boogaloo's um, office or tower pretty much into this shopping mall or using that but um but that song that show business song was so bizarre like it, it, the chorus didn't match the verses it was just so out of time and yeah you were scratching your head but apparently it was um because a lot of the team were um were, had a hebrew background a lot of it was written the lyrics were written in hebrew and then converted to american hence the reason a lot of the lyrics are really literal and, and a lot of times not even making sense with what's happened in that scene yeah, there was a definite disconnect when you you looked at the scenes and and the following uh, musical number, um, and just well, it just within the scenes themselves. I mean, when they're handing out the champagne, the glasses of the champagne, there's like that's not a glass of champagne, that's a bowl, <laughs> and and oh, B- everything has to be in excess. Yeah, yeah, and and BB meeting the the lead singer of the the Bim guys that had to be the fastest hookup I've ever seen in cinema history. I know, but then the lyrics of the song were all pretty much, like, I was listening to them and going, this sort of, is, you're singing like your lovers that have been together for a bit, like, it just did not even fit the scene, <laughs> what they were singing about, and it was just, it was quite bizarre, but, you know, I must take my hat off to them, their, their, their staging of the musical numbers is actually really good, like, you look back to a movie that we did, you know, a few months ago, The Wiz, you know, when we, you know, it was pretty much, you know, Sidney Lumet sort of filmed it with a camera very still, sort of capturing everything, and it just sort of, I remember even thinking at the time, you know, it should have been more close up, whereas this was so well edited and so well staged, even though it was as cheesy as hell, and, you know, some of the songs are pretty awful, but, you know, it's, um, yeah, you've got to give, take the hat, your hat off to them, you know, it was very well edited, and it made the songs quite exciting to look at. Yeah, the thing is, a lot of the choreography, I don't think I was actually too keen on getting that close of a look, it was just like, yeah, what? <laughs> Was that? What? Oh my God! What are they doing there? Oh, God, <laughs> and just... like a lot of it even seemed like it was out of time as well. Like I was saying, some of the songs didn't match, and some of the even the dancing was like it was filmed out of like they did they they added the playback in later, and it was just a smidge out. You know, it just felt so awkward. And I think it all comes back to this is Canon Group, a low budget film company that has never really had never done a musical before, so they were pretty much just making it up as they went along. <laughs> Mm, I should think but, um, so. It was, <laughs> but it was interesting to see um, Catherine Mary Stewart, who I knew from um, Weekend at Bernie's, actually, who played the lead character of um, BB. Now she, she's luckily her and um, who was it? Miriam is it Miriam Margoyles from is she in Harry Potter? I think she's famous. She's a lot of character actress from a lot of um, a lot of things. That they're probably the two people that actually survived this movie and actually managed to have careers afterwards. But um, Catherine Mary Stewart actually does quite a you know a good job. And I um I tried to interview her for my book a few years ago, and I went to send. She said yes, and I went to send the questions, and she never wrote back. And I was convinced it was because I asked her all these questions about the apple. I have seen a documentary where she happily laughs about the movie and talks about it now so I, I knew that mustn't have been the case but I um you know I know I, I, I do believe all her songs were dubbed like that, that's not her voice used but you know she definitely brings a good energy to it and um I think it's um yeah she's definitely the, the lead actress of, of the film 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I actually know her more from the last Starfighter, which is pretty far away from uh, from the Apple as you can get. But uh... yeah, I think, I think she did. Yeah, because this was eighty, and I think Starfighter was eighty four. So yeah, wouldn't have been too long after. So she, um, yeah, so she, her star would have been rising at that stage. So I mean, um, after she uh, she changed sides and got her BIM mark. And uh, got all BIM, and then they had the BIM Fitness Hour, where she sang along with the other two. Um, I, I had pretty much enough of the BIM Fitness Hour, hour after about 10 seconds. Oh, I know, especially when it completely didn't even change the song in some slight bit, not even a key change, it just repeated the same thing over and over. You know, and they've gone with the whole, you know, once you've seen the whole fact, aha, yes, they're stopping this. Supposed to, the firefighters are supposed to be putting out a fire and they're stopped and they're dancing instead. But they've used that gag so many times. They'll then do a, the gag of the, them in the hospital operating on the guy and they've just stopped operating on him and they're dancing. And, yeah, and once you've seen a few, few ten gags of that, you kind of get the idea. Yeah, that, that was a very short segment that still went on way too long. And it was followed <laughs> up. I, mean, I've been, I know I'm talking about the songs here, but basically, like I said, they used to cram so many in there. And then when uh, Alfie starts looking for BB, and it seemed quite reminiscent of of uh, O Sandy from Greece. And then it started raining, and then BB joined in, and and then there was a strange bit where they both had like suicidal tendency type lyrics. So, you know, they're all thinking about jumping out of the the window or, or killing themselves, and they just came from nowhere in the song. I'm going, what? Hey, what? How'd that happen? What? I just just. At this point, you can probably guess my my head was uh, was having serious issues with with trying to uh, work out what this movie was aiming for. And I think because there was just so many songs in it that it didn't allow for enough character development. Because there was a lot of I felt the whole you know BB being in the contract and you know um, you know Alfie trying to get her back. She just she changed sides really quickly. It was almost like you know um, she's like comes back from that party and she's goes back to the room and then suddenly she's pining for him and then she's but then she's back at the party again and um um that drug filled party or that coming song well we'll get to that and um <laughs> and um and then she's and then at the end when the girl's just pretty much go on he wants to be with you or whatever and it was almost just like she just changed sides so quickly it almost didn't it was just so, so flimsy that it was just like they're like i'll oh, just get this over and done with and add another song you know and then, then it kind of went into this sort of hippie territory which just kind of confused me a whole lot, you know, about the film, you know, but mm. I just felt that she, um, you know, there could have been done, there could have been more done sort of about her, you know, how she, you know, her time there and how she was feeling like, you know, she was feeling used. It was almost like Alfie gets kicked and then she, yeah, I don't know. I can, yeah, it's, it's, it's a strange thing. Yeah. I just think they just wanted to make more room for another song. <laughs> I think so. It was pretty much like, um, whatever, I think what the lead singer, the, the female lead singer of that, that big band was, was Pandy well, and Dandy, wasn't it? The, the two yeah, singers. and I actually thought, I thought Dandy was the female, but no, Dandy is the male. <laughs> yeah, so BB basically takes Pandy's lead. Pandy says, sign the contract. Okay. Pandy says, quick, run away and go to your love. Okay. <laughs> I mean, who's in charge here? And it's just, it all just happened so quickly, and I think it's yeah, it's just like they just wanted to get to another musical number. But but then we sort of get into now. I don't know if it's just me scratching my head, but we then get into a part where um, Alfie Alfie's been beaten up after trying to you know trying to hunt down um, BB when she was getting into the um, limousine. In the, oh yeah, and in the um, uh, in the mob scene where everyone's yeah, going oh yeah. baby. And then he wakes up 
I, I don't know if this is the scene afterwards when he wakes up in the park and you've got all these hippies, all these little hippie kids laughing at him because he's yelling out "Bibi, Bibi," and he and he pretty much says, "You can't sleep here," and you're kind of getting this feeling, what has this all been a dream or something? It kind of starts to get into that territory where I'm kind of wondering what's happening, and I'm like, surely it can't mean that much because then in the second in the scene after this, you've got Bibi back in the the Boogaloo Mansion, I suppose, you know, pining for for Alfie again. So I don't really know what happens there with the whole hippie thing coming in. It confused the hell out of me, yeah. and I think it was very much just they didn't know how to end this film, and they've just thrown something in. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, he got he got beaten up, and that led to the uh, O-B-B-O-Elfie song. Then he went to the party and got drugged by Pandy, which led into uh, that Coming For You song, which I thought, this is strangely <laughs> explicit without actually being graphic, but then I realised that not long after I made that note, um, it threw in a whole pile of sex moans and some highly explicit-looking choreography. So I was like, <laughs> yeah. And then it's when he when he um, comes to the next morning, the uh, the leader of the refugees from the 60s, which is exactly how they describe themselves, and it's just like this big hippie commune in a park that then has to go hide under, under in a cave under a bridge when the police turn up. <laughs> so they've pretty much taken Alfie under their wing, essentially, I suppose. And you know, but it's it's but then it goes into this yeah this quite unusual section because then you've got sort of later on when um when BB does eventually find him in the park. That, oh, I don't know that I got quite confused by it because there was also she had a kid and you were supposed to think they'd been there for a year or I don't know. It got very confusing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I was like, th- that entire sequence, it just happened so far. So Pandy goes, go to him, um, and proceeds to get beaten up by Mr. Boogaloo's sidekick. And that's the last you see of her. <laughs> and then um, <laughs> uh, she she heads out, Bibi heads out and catches the monorail. And she, yeah, she looks exactly like she did before when she was being absolutely mobbed by hordes of fans, yet she's sitting there and everyone's completely ignoring her. Yes, And she finds Alfie, and Alfie completes her redemption by leaning forward and carefully peeling the bim mark off her head. The bim mark, by the way, is an upside-down, tinsely triangle. That's all it is. Yeah, nothing too exciting. And then suddenly, it's a year later, Alfie's got a beard and Bibi's got a baby. Yeah, and then this is when, I think at this stage is when they come back looking for, Mr. Boogaloo comes back looking for Bibi. It's weird that that's taken them a year to actually work out to come back and find her, but anyway, <laughs> work out where they'd be, because I'm sure they would have known where the refugees would have been hanging out. So, But anyway, they must have been hiding under the bridge too much. <laughs> I'd say so. But, um, <laughs> but then you've got the arrival of a character which is never mentioned beforehand, and very confusing, but Mr. Top still arrives in a gold limousine in the sky, which is as bizarre as it sounds, and this was one which made me question it even more. Now, my interpretation of this thing is he does come in and, and pretty much tries to stop Mr. Boogaloo from what he's trying to do. And so, you know, I suppose you can interpret it as, you know, he's, the, you know, he's, he's good and, you know, Mr. Boogaloo is evil, and, and it's almost like, I don't know, maybe Mr. Boogaloo or, or Bim took over, you know, the, the world with all their music and realised that, you know, it's it, his time is up, so this Mr. Tops has come back to, to redeem his place, but I don't know if that's looking way too much into this film. 
It almost seemed to be like a rapture scene. So all the hippies are about to be arrested because Bibi refuses to go back to uh, to Mr. Boogaloo, a.k.a. Satan. And, uh, yeah, Mr. Yeah. Tops comes down from on high and uh, leads all the hippies, um, I guess, to uh, to a new world where Mr. Boogaloo isn't, so assuming paradise, and the hippies must be the true believers. So I guess if you want to go to paradise, you, you need to uh, enjoy stuff from the 60s. Yeah, it sounds good to me, actually. <laughs> but it's like, but yeah, but but admittedly, yeah, like mentioned, you know, this is the first, this sort of stuff is all thrown in in the last sort of, you know, like 10 or 15 minutes, you know, no mention of this Mr. Tops or anything beforehand. So, you know, but they're really trying to push home that, you know, that whole, um, that the whole sort of biblical story, you know, which is, is quite strange when it, you know, at first we just shoved this whole heap of camp musical numbers for the first half and then it sort of goes off into this but but I was actually in, in you know um one thing that I found quite interesting as I mentioned the film was pretty much in two exact halves because you know by about 45 minutes in or so I noticed was all was the period of when all the intense songs sort of finished and we were taken straight to the slums with Miriam Margoyles and you know the Alfie's apartment and all that and I thought it was really quite clever how they managed to at least show us what was happening away from BIM, you know, because even though you understood that the whole place has been taken over by this this um, Boogaloo International Music, it um, was good to be able to see sort of how these people were coping with it, the people that weren't all wrapped up in all the World Vision Song Contest or whatever it was. So that was actually kind of, it was touching to be able to give it that, gave it a bit of a break from all the camp, you know, and, um, but, you know, and then, but as we realised it, it just got to quite weird territory and, and a whole heap of guitar ballads. Yeah, yeah, because, um, yeah, you got to admire Alfie's persistence. After his initial love duet uh, went nowhere, uh, he, yeah, he persisted with regard, with going for the acoustic soft love songs in this world of uh, of high-energy BIM music. <laughs> At least he stuck by his guns. He was writing that music from the, you know, the very first time we see them. So, you know, at least he stuck by his guns. So maybe he represents more of us than the, than the um the, the craziness that was happening, you know, in there. You know, you only have to look at some of the lines. You know, I think when they're asking about him as the agent, she goes, oh, you know, Mr. Boogler, he only takes 50%, you know, just that, just sort of just pointed out the lunacy of this sort of existence that they were living. But, you know, in many ways, I kind of wanted to see more of this sort of town or this, world that had been created but we really are quite I think due to budget restraints limited pretty much to his shopping mall office and you know a couple of party scenes so yeah that was sort of one thing I felt but you know in the defense of the film with its soundtrack now I know a lot of people in disgust of the film through the soundtrack at the screens but as bad as some of them are those catchy as hell I'm just going to say that I find myself singing these songs in my head days after going no I can't be doing this this isn't this isn't right so but they were they were clever in that respect, but I don't know if it's necessarily a good thing or if it's got really bad taste. Well, um, <laughs> um, I guess if we uh, if we flip over and, and and start talking redeeming features, uh, I shall go first and and say that yeah, Christian, it must be bad taste. Uh, I mean, <laughs> that seriously, the apple must have been. The, the campest film that shoehorned in or even crowbarred in a, a religious allegory uh, that I think I have ever seen. I, I probably would give them a B-plus for effort for the sheer, 
for the sheer amount of songs they managed to cram into that movie. But I found the songs, the script, the plot, the acting were just absolutely terrible. Uh, the movie was completely messed up and chaotic. It it could not keep a consistent theme, um, and yeah, just kind of occasionally got religious uh, at a couple of moments during, and then and went over the over the top religious right at the end. Um, Campiness cannot save this movie, Christian. It's just too <laughs> terrible, and I I find it completely irredeemable. It's it's horrible. It was a terrible oh, terrible fuck. movie, and I got to the end of it, and I immediately thought, "Why did I make the podcast PG? Because I can't say what I really want to say." <laughs> Oh no! Whereas, as I said, you know, much earlier in in the podcast, I um, I had given this film like I had seen the film probably about three times before we'd seen the, you know, we we watched it for the podcast. You know, this was a few years ago. I've watched it probably about two or three times since we uh, I suggested it because I found myself wanting to see it a second time, and then it was it was catching on like you know essentially what a cult film is, you know. So it must be my taste, Trevor. Because, you know, you've just got to look at one of my favourite films of all time, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and it reeked of this film so much. And it also, you know, you know it's not one of my favourites, but, you know, I do enjoy Xanadu. It's a guilty pleasure, you know. And it, it honestly felt like if Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and Xanadu got together and had a kid, I think the apple would be quite close in its um, <laughs> in its results. So, and, you know, this sort of, you know, camp tongue-in-cheek, you know. But at the same time, too, I don't think it was tongue-in-cheek. I think they were thinking they were making what... They thought they were making another Rocky Horror Picture show, you know, and, and or something like that. So, you know, I think hats off for throwing in every gar- garish, garish costume you possibly imaginable. You know, imaginable. It almost makes Lady Gaga look plain. Some of the costumes in this film, you know. So, you know, you did mention Trevor about it being inconsistent, and I know it's very consistent with plot, but I think it's consistent with its campness. Like, I mean, it never holds back off. It does kind of, well, actually, no. It does sort of it hold in the second half. We sort of get a bit more bacteria. Yeah? But it, it, it's it's weird the whole way through. It never lets up, which I think is um you know hats off to them for at least you know not holding back. So I found it visually exciting. I found that the musical numbers were really well edited. I've watched so many musicals over the years, and it actually ranks up there. You know with the the way it's shot and edited with a lot of those sort of eighties you know movie musical classics. So you know, and it was much better as I said than something like The Wiz. You know to to watch visually, and you know no expense seems spared, even though we have no idea what that expense was. So. So call it a guilty pleasure. I don't know if I can say it's irredeemable. I definitely think it, it needs to be. This needs to be seen. It might not be your kind of thing, but I definitely think it's much more. I'd rather watch this ten times than half the movies we've watched on the podcast. So might be just my thoughts, but <laughs> I'd be interested to see what other people think of the apple. Absolutely. Well, I think okay. That's another one that we uh, we disagree on, but that's quite all right. Yeah. Well, hopefully it'll change eventually. We'll find another. We'll find <laughs> one. <laughs> I'm sure we will. But you know what? This movie does have its fans, and um, like I said, I mean, there was actually one other person who watched this with me, and I asked her what she thought a redeeming feature of this movie was, and she basically just said it ended. <laughs> a redeeming feature, uh, but I've got someone who's uh, who's a bit more generous, who uh, has put up a review that I I've dug up, 
titled Take a Bite, You Won't Regret It. I purchased this DVD without having seen it, nor really knowing what it was about. Night of the Comet is one of my all-time favourite silly movies, and the best thing about Night of the Comet is Catherine Mary Stewart, who also plays the lead in The Apple. Having seen her sing in scenes from The Goldmine, I wasn't so surprised that The Apple turned out to be a musical. What surprises is the genre being blown away. The Apple is a combination of Rocky Horror, Xanadu, Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and several other movies that came after it. Fans of campy movies, campy musicals, or just plain bizarre stories should check this out. The highlights of the numbers, including The Apple, and I'm Coming For You, with the later looking like something that was too racy for Barbarella. I don't know why it took 25 years for this amazing film to be reissued for home viewing, but snatch it up while it's available. Five stars. <laughs> I found it really interesting that, she, that the reviewer wanted to see the film because of, of Catherine Mary Stewart singing and, and her, her vocals were dubbed. <laughs> so that, <laughs> that would have been a real disappointment for them. So, oh, well, yeah, so <laughs> there's your diehards out, die out there. So. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> but whether they're, um, yeah. They sound like they're legitimately, uh, you know, they're not looking at it in a um, so bad it's good kind of way. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. For real. Yeah, I guess if you are a fan of, of movies like Xanadu, which I think was another one that I uh, could not quite bring myself to redeem, but Tristan again disagreed with me on that one. Uh, you, you probably should check it out, but uh, as for me, I'm, I'm going nowhere near this thing again. Yeah. Oh well, and and for the sounds of it, not many Australians have gone near it either. So <laughs> it's not even available on DVD out here. So I don't think. I think it will remain somewhat of a rarity. So maybe for good reason, based on Trevor's <laughs> Trevor's thought. Fair enough. So, uh, so yeah. So in in summary, uh, another split decision. I say irredeemable. Christian says redeemable. So I guess we're going to have to leave it up to the listener to make up their own mind. Ooh. Interested to see what the next one to tackle would be to wash this this apple taste out of our mouths. Mm-hmm. The sort of I think it's the sort of apple that uh, isn't quite ripe. So when you eat it, it gives you a pretty nasty case of tummy troubles. <laughs> okay. So um, I think as I mentioned last time, we we've had a bit of a run of of uh, movies that seem to be very heavy with regards to music, whether it be somebody from, uh, like, a music performer trying to cross genres to movies, or a musical movie, or just movies that have a very strong focus on the music, and guess what? I am going to break that cycle here and now. We are going to move on to a completely different genre, and... Christian, I know you're a fan of the sequels, and I know you like checking out a sequel. Oh, yes, I, lo- I like a good sequel. I always feel quite sorry for sequels, but I'm interested first to know what that sequel is before I start defending it. <laughs> Fair enough. So, I've actually picked a, a sequel. There is a movie series that has had a very recent sequel that's done quite well at the box office. Now, what fascinates me is, is the one that came out recently was actually number four in the series and is pretty much a direct sequel to number one. So it actually wipes out the two movies in the middle and, and pretty much pretends they don't exist. And you know what, Christian? I would love to know why Jurassic Park 3 was completely disregarded when they made Jurassic World. <laughs> I am up for the challenge because I have actually only seen Jurassic World and the very first films. So 
I have wanted to see Jurassic, I mean, sorry, Lost World. So, because that seems to be the one that's always forgotten. So, mm-hmm. and um, I have heard some very mixed, mixed thoughts on that film. So I'll be interested to tackle it with you, actually. Fair enough. So next time around, rated 5.9 on IMDb, we can check out Jurassic Park 3 from 2001. A bit of a, a gap between that and its most recent sequel, but again, let's uh, see where that takes us. I've been I've been curious about this movie as well for quite some time. I have not seen it, so uh, we're both going to be watching this fresh. Oh, I'm excited. So I'll try and I'll, I was going to say I'll try and forget everything I've seen in Jurassic World, but the sounds of it, there's nothing linked anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> pretty correct. And uh, and of course, we would love to hear from you guys as well. So if you think we have been too harsh on the apple, do you think we've been too generous, particularly Christian, who I think has been too generous, <laughs> then we would love to hear from you. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on Jurassic Park 3. Are you a fan? Do you think it's right that it was ignored? We want to know, and it's super easy to get in touch with us. You can find The Rufus Project on Twitter or Facebook. You can send us an email to therufusproject at gmail.com. Or you can head to our homepage, therufusproject.podomatic.com, and leave a comment below this very, very episode. If you're feeling really, really fun, you can also find us on iTunes and give us a review, because apparently that helps us with uh, our visibility on iTunes, but we're super-duper easy to find. There are plenty of ways to get in touch, so hopefully, hopefully we can hear some people's opinions about one or both of these movies. Can't wait. To, um, to get stuck into that, something a bit different, not musical at all. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. And, uh, and of course, if anybody out there has a suggestion or a movie that they think should be redeemed, uh, that you like but nobody else uh, seems to, we, where you go to, guys? We will give any movie a good run. Okay, that's a, that's a guarantee. We don't promise a good we result. We already have. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't promise a good result, but we will give it a good go. It's, it could never be as bad as some of the stuff we've already seen, so... <laughs> D- Christian, don't say that. You, you know there's something out there that we haven't seen which is probably going to blow everything else away. <laughs> oh, no, we'll, we'll wake up to an email from someone going, oh, no, <laughs> it exists. So, but in the meantime, we'll uh, we'll stick with Jurassic Park three. It sounds like it might be safer waters for us. So, I think so. Well, um, Christian, as always, it's been an absolutely fun time chatting about this. So, uh, I guess we will chat more next time. Thank you very for much. Sure. Thank you very much, and thank you for um, putting up with the apple for me. <laughs> and we'll look forward to chatting Jurassic Park three. <laughs> Boy, oh boy, is it too good to be bad? So bad it's good. What's this movie? Do you think we should? Got bad? I love dodgy creatures, but we want to know what the redeeming features. Boy. Christian and Trevor on the case, watching movies from all over the place. I'm the beast, it's bad, but we want to know, is it fun to be had? Boy? Oh boy. Redeeming teachers.
the string Like a monkey on a swing Men is clinging to the ropes of the fantasies and hopes we are dangling Mr. Boogalo He's so eager to believe And so easily deceived Like a baby watching magic he's so gullible it's tragic in the world of naive Life is nothing but show business in 1994 